Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. Abby, happy birthday. Hey. <laughs> Thank you. I'm 30 today. Right, how about that? Your third decade of life. Are you, are you ready for it? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've had quite a few uh, previous decades, but I'm pretty excited about turning 30. And happy belated birthday to you. Do how you about want that? Do you want to share how old you are with the listeners? No, I okay. really don't. I really don't. But uh, I am. It is kind of funny. We're both Sagittarians. I'm a I'm a Pearl Harbor Day uh, birthday, and you are December eighth, which is when we're recording this. Yes, December eighth. Um, Jim Morrison was born, and John Lennon died. That's today. right. Yeah, yeah. So we both share a lot of death with our birthdays. <laughs> Hey, life and death, uh, <laughs> yin and yang. <laughs> See, I always look at, uh, I try to tell people that uh, Pearl Harbor Day should be named uh, something like um, uh, Love a Skeptic Day. Okay, uh, tell me why. <laughs> well, I mean, I think because there's uh, there there was a, uh, there were a lot of people uh, in the 1940s who uh, a lot of very highly placed uh, people in government, in uh, academia, elsewhere, who never believed the Japanese even had the capabilities to attack the United States. Mm. Uh, and in fact, there were some really crazy, like racist ideas that um, Japanese people couldn't even fly planes. Mm. Uh there's some great books that I've read about all this, obviously, because my, it's my birthday. I've had a fascination with it. Um, but there were skeptics out there who were saying, no, this could happen. This is going to happen. Watch out. We need to be prepared, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, a lot of those skeptics not only were proven right, but they, there were a few who were able to get to the administration at the time to at least get some of the aircraft carriers out to sea uh, in advance of what happened. So it, the destruction that happened was horrible, but it actually could have been much worse. Hmm. Uh, and uh, even then, though, there were so many warning signs in the days leading up to the attack that people just ignored. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's pretty incredible, really. Wow. It's an incredible story. I didn't know any of that. And ex it explains a lot about you and your personality as the <laughs> ultimate skeptic. <laughs> yes, yes, I suppose it is. Uh, yeah, I, very cool. I, I like to say, if you, however skeptical you are, you're not skeptical enough. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm really excited today to have uh, Abby Newsham here with me uh, on the podcast. Uh, and... Abby's been uh, very generous to have me on her podcast, uh, Upzoned, a number of times. And uh, we're going to have some fun today. I want to talk about a couple of topics, but we're going to take one portion uh, and do sort of a reverse Upzoned. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to take Abby's format and turn it right back at her, uh, and and we'll have a little fun with that. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit first about just what all you're doing now, um, and you've had a lot going on lately. Uh, but you've also, you, you've had the good fortune to be involved with our friends, Monty Anderson and Bernice Radel a lot with a project in Kansas City. Uh, I think it would be of interest to a lot of people uh, to talk about this. It's in a, it's in a neighborhood that has a lot of pride and, um, uh, you know, really good people, but a lot of challenges mm -hmm. too. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about your involvement uh, in the Marlboro uh, School Project and what's going on with that. So I guess I'll start by talking about a little bit about what led up to this crazy adventure of working on the school project, because I'm an urban planning consultant by background, by trade, 
And through the work that that I've done with multi-studio, I got really interested in incremental development, small-scale development, uh, urban infill, that kind of thing. And over the past five years or so, I formulated and have been running a group called Small Developers of KC, which is, I would say, an ad hoc offshoot of the Incremental Development Alliance. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of stemmed from the workshop that they did in Kansas City many years ago. And since then, we've been meeting every single month with people in Kansas City who are doing small-scale development projects or interested in small-scale development and uh, talking about various aspects of that. And we've been very lucky to have Monty and Bernice speak at those meetups at least once a year, which is fantastic. And they're incredibly compelling speakers. Um, we are currently going through what Monty calls the 12-step program, where mm -hmm. we focus on a particular aspect of real estate development um, every single month. And we have different facilitators for each topic. So kind of structured off of the AA uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> process, um, but it's more facilitated conversations where people can bring their experience, they can bring current projects to the conversation. Um, which has been really great. So this has all led into working with the Kansas City Community Land Trust, um, which is a nonprofit organization in Kansas City that um, they specialize in land trust housing. So they acquire property, they rehab houses, and they are able to provide uh, home ownership opportunities for people who may not qualify to participate in the market. So it's more affordable. And the way that the structure works with how the houses are sold down the line helps to minimize the inflation of housing under market hmm. levels, while also enabling people who are, are who are the buyers and owners and sellers eventually of these houses to still benefit economically so that they could hopefully participate in the market down the road. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a cool organization that provides, I think, some interesting opportunities in the housing space. They um, had started in what's called the Marlboro neighborhood of Kansas City, which is on the east side of Kansas City. It's a, a you know, disproportionately uh, African-American area of the city, ha had been redlined, has had a lot of economic issues over the past several decades, and it has an old decommissioned elementary school in the middle of it. And it's a beautiful school. I mean, I, I think there's many schools like this in Kansas City that had been decommissioned by the Kansas City Public School District. And maybe we can talk about school districts decommissioning schools because mm -hmm. it's not just a Kansas City problem and challenge, but um, the organization had the opportunity to acquire this building. And it's a gorgeous brick building um, that is, it's brick on the outside. It's basically a tank on the inside. It's mm -hmm. like all concrete, um, which is great because there wasn't a roof on it for a long time. So uh, the mm -hmm. water didn't completely destroy the building. Um, so I have been working with Monty Anderson, who um, is a developer in South Dallas. He's been on this podcast um, for a couple of years now working with the land trust to figure out how to reuse this school. And it has been, for me, a crash course in understanding all the different 
aspects and processes of real estate development and even like construction management, um, which is a, an incredible opportunity because it's something I'm so interested in. It's a pretty big project, I think, to get started. It, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it a starter project. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> but, a, it's a substantial <laughs> effort to get it's for a, our first project. It is a substantial effort. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's an expensive project. Um, it will be phased. So starting, it's a three-story building. It will start with doing the first floor and then phasing in the second and third floor down the road. And thankfully, we've raised about a third of the money that we need, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're right now we're working on kind of a, a financial approach that will have a combination of philanthropy and private lending. So how much money did you need to raise to, to get this project going, to, to even get to doing the first floor like you're talking about? So we've raised um, like $1.2 million mm-hmm. and the total cost to do the first floor is about $3 million. Okay. Which, and th- that also include that $3 million includes it's like stabilizing the building, the roof and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it includes everything, even down to <clears throat> the acquisition cost, which I okay. think was like $200,000. Um, so that includes everything that's been done so far. Okay. Um, the reason that it's doing the first floor has it's, it's a little bit of a upfront cost because there's a lot of building infrastructure work that needs sure. to be done to reuse the building and building stabilization, which includes the roof, but it also includes replacing all the windows for all the floors, mm-hmm. um, you know, having all the mechanical, electrical, plumbing systems, at least not finished out on the second and third floor, but, but the systems. functional and up to date. Yeah. Exactly. The systems so have to be in place. How long was the building vacant? It has been vacant since 2007. Okay. Wow. So, so quite a while. Years, yeah. yeah, 15 years. Um, and it's slowly looking better on the inside. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of clean and demo, um, just starting to get all of the trash out of the building yeah. and everything cleaned up, which Monty always talks about the importance of the clean and demo phase of a project. And I don't, I think I understood it as a concept. Mm-hmm. And now I really understand it. Now mm-hmm. that we've actually cleaned out the building, you can really start to understand the spaces in a different way when there's not just trash all yeah. over the place um, and rubble and, you know, building material. Yeah. And one of your 12 step sessions, our friend Jason Carter Solomon uh, covered that topic really <laughs> well and demolition and just, you know, why it's so important and why it's really hard to make decisions until you know what you're working with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even down to like knowing what's going on behind walls, especially in a school like this, a building yeah. like this, there's all kinds of fun things going on behind walls that you don't know about until you mm-hmm. start knocking things down. So the 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 community land trust, the Casey Community Land Trust, they are the owner. Is that right? They're the, yes. The, so they're and they are like a five hundred one c three or something. Correct. I I believe they're a five hundred one c three organization. Okay. So how did they go about raising the the one point two million that you have now uh, that gets you started on the project? So it's a combination of philanthropic funds and lending. So okay. they were able to um, to get lending through LISC, mm-hmm. which um, is a, like a nonprofit bank organization. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. It, local initiative support corporation. They're a national uh, yes. organization, but they have local field offices, so to speak. Yeah, yeah and so th- I think the benefit of this project and them being the developer is that as a nonprofit organization that 
has a lot of local support. They are able to have a capital stack that combines philanthropy and and lending and, and creative and alternative types of lending. I think if this were a project that a private developer were trying to do, it would be a lot more challenging and there would need to be other tools brought to bear on mm-hmm. on how this would work. But that's I think that's really been the benefit of them being the developer. Now, for for me and Monty, our I think main concern is that the philanthropic funding is something that is done up front, mm. but long term it's a sustainable project. Mm. And what I mean by that is that it cash flows right. in the long term, not just when the first floor is done, but second and third floor, because the organization at its core is a housing organization and right. The extent to which the project can cash flow will provide support for the the actual housing work that they do, and I right. think that's the real intention. And uh, to the you know on the other side, if it doesn't cash flow, it's a huge albatross and problem yes. for the organization. So exactly, um, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know I think one thing I really love about uh, Monty and the way he. Uh, tries to teach people in this world is, you know, we shouldn't, no, even even though it is a uh, charitable organization that's running it, doesn't mean you should look at it as a charitable project. Exactly. Uh, projects, development projects need to make money. Uh, and they need to make money because they're risky. Uh, and uh, also because there's a lot of expenses that come with owning real estate. Exactly. Um, and, and even when the project is done managing real estate, yeah. I, I mean, that that's all kind of in this financial planning that we're working on with them because mm-hmm. the intent is really for this to be a sustainable project so that this organization is not going back to the philanthropic community and asking right. for funding to to maintain this building and to keep things going. Right. Um, operations are obviously really important. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be a worthwhile venture to them. As Monty would say, uh, what does he say? You need to do good, but also make money. Right. And they're both equal. Right. <laughs> There's right. N- none, none is above the other, which I think is an important concept. Yeah. So uh, what was what's the timeline on the deal? When, when do you expect that you'll be at a point when you'll have tenants in there uh, operating? I'm hoping that it will be a year from now. It might be the spring of 2026, uh, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah. Let's call it the World Cup. That's, <laughs> everyone else in Kansas City just says World Cup is our, uh, yeah. that's our timeline. We're putting so. everything off until the World Cup, Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> We're either putting everything off or we are completely reconstructing Kansas yeah. City by yeah. the World Cup. And after the World Cup is done, we're not going to do anything for like three years. I, so. hope, <laughs> I hope that it creates some momentum, but... Uh, I mean, I don't know what to expect from the World Cup. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, it, it should be really cool. Uh, I think a lot will probably depend on which teams, actually, which countries come here. Yeah, good uh, point. But, uh, but yeah, I already, I know a lot of planning is going into that. And it, it's a, it's just, it's good to have a goal. It's good to have a benchmark to, yeah. to work towards. Yeah. Well, that's a really cool project. So this, uh, this is really the first time you've been kind of much more in the weeds on, on a development project yourself right? Yes. Yeah, I guess it is. It's really the first time that I've been working on a project longer term and in the weeds in lots of different ways. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm in the weeds in terms of the the finances, which I I mean, I for me, I don't know if it's because my mom is an accountant, but I'm like, 
I love numbers. I love crunching numbers. I love making plans and spreadsheets. And so I've been very happy that our the banker that we're talking to says their underwriter is going to be happy with all the detail, which I take great pride in. Um, but I'm also in the weeds in terms of just kind of day-to-day needs mm-hmm. working with some of the contractors. Um, we had some AmeriCorps volunteers on site helping to restripe the parking lot, so helping cool. to oversee that. Um, we had a fencer there hmm. last week to secure the property. So just, you know, anything from uh, uh, doing some fence work to working with the bank, um, explaining all of this to the organization's board of directors, meeting with philanthropy and, and that community and trying to come up with plans. Um, so it's it's been a great experience, especially as a um you know, manic generalist planner yeah. <laughs> personality. It's, it's a cool opportunity. Well, it's, I mean, it's cool because the, uh, uh being a developer in many ways is like being the ultimate generalist. So yeah, you just, it you, is. you have to be adept and flexible to be able to do so many different things and knowledgeable. Uh, you don't have to know everything, uh, but you have to know enough about like all these different areas that you just touched on. Yeah, that's a good point because you're hiring a bunch of specialists, right? Mm -hmm. Like the guy who's installing the fence, he's a fence specialist. I don't Mm -hmm. know anything about fences and he's telling me what we need, which Mm -hmm. is great. Um, I have an overview of what we need. Same with the architects. They're a specialist Mm -hmm. and they can look over our shoulder, look over the shoulder of contractors. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's the, it's the ultimate generalist position. (laughs) Then you get to learn when they're like not really telling you the truth and, <laughs> <laughs> or when, you know, they're holding out some information or where they're being just blatantly dishonest about things, well, that, that's which is where, also part of it. Uh-huh. Well, that's where it's important to be a skeptic, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've learned that from you. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, so has this gotten your uh, appetite wet at all for like a next project? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has. I don't know what that project is at this point. Mm-hmm. I am excited to learn if interest rates will go down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I want to do a project of my own, actually, or in partnership with somebody, um, which is different than doing a project yeah. for a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. in a lot of fundamental ways. But yes, it definitely is um, something that I would like to continue doing. Okay. Cool. Well, interest rates are going to come down next year. You can take that to the bank. So, okay. Uh, I shouldn't be skeptical of that statement. Well, I mean, you can be five percent skeptical of it. But okay. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. <laughs> I think that's. Uh, I think that's baked in. Okay. Um, but um, I mean, how much they come down and how quickly is always a question. But yeah. Um, so I think there will be opportunity, uh, and uh, and obviously uh, lean on all of your friends who know a lot about this world because we'd like to see you get going on your own project at some point. I think that'd be really cool for you. I think so. it would be very cool for me too. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. Um, so I, I, we're going to, we're going to do the upzone portion now. Okay. Uh, so uh, I thought this would be just kind of a fun thing to do. Um, you, the upzone podcast itself is part of the strong towns network that Abby hosts. It's a terrific podcast. I think it's got a much bigger uh, audience than this podcast. So, uh, but hopefully it, there's a few people who haven't heard of it. We'll go over and, and subs- click and subscribe to it. It's really good. Abby does these like 30 minute episodes where she picks an article that's uh, sort of a hot topic or something in the news and then has a guest on to discuss it. Oftentimes the guest is Chuck Marone. Uh, so they always, they always have a good back and forth. 
Uh, and, uh, but she's had uh, a number of other people on, including myself, which has always been fun. Uh, anyway, I, I highly encourage everybody to subscribe to Upzones. I think Upzoned, I think it's terrific. And, uh, it's been a little quiet lately for a variety of reasons, but I know, <laughs> I know you're looking to ramp back up we're after coming the first back. of the year. Yeah, yeah. We're making a comeback in January, 2024. Well, your fan hiatus. <laughs> Good. Your fans are ready. So, so I actually, so Kevin, I, when I record, I often, it's like a zoom call. So I often forget yeah. that people listen to it. And I have been incredibly touched that some people have reached out to ask yeah. if we have canceled Upsound. And I'm here to say we haven't canceled it. Well, we can wet everybody's appetite right here <laughs> with a December episode Yeah, totally. <laughs> that we can share. But, uh, so I picked out an article that, I, that was, uh, I thought was kind of interesting and, uh, would be a little bit, uh, different and fun to talk about. Uh, and I'm going to do my best Abby impression here, which I'm not going to do very well. But uh, this one uh, came from a, uh, a sub stack that I read uh, by uh, a guy named Addison uh, Del, Ma- Del Mastro. Uh, I, th- his, uh, I think the name of the sub stack is The Deleted Scenes. Uh, Addison, uh, really interesting guy, younger guy who uh, I think he used to write for curate pieces for uh, about cities and urbanism for the American Conservative magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, now he's on his own doing his Substack. Uh, he's a fairly prolific uh, uh, writer and puts out basically a piece almost every day. Uh, some of them very short, some of them a little longer. This one was a little bit longer uh, from uh, earlier this week. And it's the title of the piece is Have You Ever Seen a City? And uh, the subtitle being, when we talk about urbanism, most of us don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of funny. So I'm going to pick a few things here that I thought were interesting uh, quotes from the piece. Uh, Addison, he's funny. He kind of deci- describes himself as somebody who is interested in progressive causes, but he has a conservative temperament. Uh, and he writes about that quite often. So the, you know, his voice is really interesting in that regard. He he crosses over a lot of lines, and so I always ask people to not not get turned off uh, one way or another uh, for anybody's political viewpoint, because uh, the good points and good points of view can come from every direction. And uh, I think Addison does a lot of good writing. So this piece is really kind of diving into this question about like, do people really? When we ask people about like different choices in cities or urbanism or anything, do we do they even know what we're talking about? Uh, do they, do they know what we mean? So, uh, a few things he said here. He said, "This is our baseline when it comes to urbanism. We don't know. The average American can no more imagine the texture, habits, and routines of everyday everyday life in a walkable urban community than they can imagine completely cutting meat out of their diet. Maybe mm. less so." Asking questions about housing and land use in opinion polling or having political debates about these issues is largely fruitless because we don't actually know what we're discussing. We may and frequently do say no, but that answer is often based either on incomplete knowledge or preconceived ideas. And he also quotes at length uh, a a piece from our friend Daniel Harrigus uh, that was published on the Strong Towns Network. Uh, that he has a number of pull quotes from, but here's one that I thought was interesting that Daniel writes, nearly every American alive today has only ever lived in a time when the suburban development pattern was deeply subsidized while traditional urban fabric has been actively destroyed and disinvested in wherever it hasn't been regulated into scarcity. 
It's common under these conditions of subsidy for people to casually express sentiments like, in suburbia, you can get more house for your money. Such a belief will absolutely influence a question about where you would live given the choice. And then Addison writes, following up on that, the point here is not that people are stupid and don't know what's best for themselves and need government to help them out. Rather, it's that our incentives largely inform our preferences. And furthermore, that urbanism in contemporary American context has so few live examples that most of us don't have a basis on which to like or not like it. Uh, Abby? Kevin. Your your thoughts? You... This is basically everything I wrote down here in this notebook. <laughs> My handwriting is a lot worse great minds than that, that printed text. Yeah. No, I, this was a great article. And Addison um, is somebody that I've been following for many years. He's such a great writer. I love that he also quoted Daniel Harrigus from Strong Towns in this because the two of them are like my favorite writers in this mm. space. And it's cool because Addison has more of a, of a conservative temperament and Daniel has more of a progressive temperament. Mm-hmm. I love that they kind yeah. of work off each other's uh, writing and are able to em- embrace one another, which isn't necessarily the point of the article, but right. I think it's something that's really important in this space of uh urbanism, but cities, writing about cities, thinking about cities, um, because the oftentimes contemporary or I'll say conventional political framings are not very useful or helpful in the kinds of discussions we're kind of, we're trying to have to the extent that we know what we're even talking about right. <laughs> at all, uh, which is the point of this article. Um, yeah, that this is just an it's an interesting article because it made me think that as individuals or families, we all live in different ways mm-hmm. uh, depending on where we live. And they talked about this concept of the place you live being like it. everything comes as a bundle. Right. So you have all these characteristics like the relative safe, safety or school district, walkability, uh, amenities, parks. Those are all things that come as a bundle, sometimes perceived and sometimes real. Um, but nonetheless, we we all kind of have we we subscribe to a bundle in where we live, and we all feel that our way is is quote unquote normal, right? Because it's familiar and it's the way the way things are in our life. And so when I think for for the conversation between suburbia versus urbanism, I think there's a lot of gray area between that um, because like I live in a very urban neighborhood, a very walkable neighborhood uh, for Kansas City, but mm-hmm. I use a car to get almost everywhere. Right. <laughs> I have to be very intentional about about walking because I like to walk, but I drive to work every day. It's not Like, you know, if I'm talking about urbanism, do I even know what I'm talking about? Mm. It's certainly Mm. not the same as living in Greenwich Village of New York City or international cities where people are truly living um, in a, you know, in urban walkable communities. And it is wholly their lifestyle. Uh, When I was in college, there were some students that visited us that were from Germany and they were they I would say were living an actual urban lifestyle. And the funny thing is that they all had sports cars that <laughs> <laughs> that they keep that they like go on the weekends out to the mountains. And it's it, it's really more something that they would have for fun. Right. Um, 
and it wasn't really a, a key function in their lifestyle. So, yeah, I, I think that's this is something that um, I think is worth kind of thinking through, especially in the context of a place like Kansas City or American cities generally. What are we even talking about when we're talking about mm-hmm. urbanism and walkability and that kind of thing? In in your work as a planner, and you've worked in a lot of different kinds of communities, do you find that you run across this this conversation a lot that you might talk about walkability or different ways of living and do people understand do you get blank stares does it does it how much does that conversation um resonate or do you feel like you know when you're talking to people and i know you've worked like in suburban communities in kansas yeah. city and some exurban places but you've also worked in urban neighborhoods as well that's a really good question i i would say that first and foremost when we are bringing ideas to a community it's not like the um like the twitter (laughs) urbanism view where everything has to be pure and perfect and if it's not pure and perfect then you're wrong and we're right Right. kind of thing um uh, the work that we do within consulting and urban planning is a lot more about identifying specific problems and challenges and then thinking through alternatives and ways to address challenges and problems in addition to overarching policy ideas and land use planning and, and regulatory issues as well. So um, so I don't know if that kind of gets to that, but working in different contexts and I think taking that approach is uh, is a is an approach that is a lot more palatable to people because we're not just throwing the kitchen sink. Um, of urbanism or a blanket approach to a community. That being said, depending on where you work, people, I think, are generally, uh, their appetite for change varies drastically. Right. Um, If you are working in a first or second ring high-end suburb, they may not want any change which will remain nameless (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh which will remain nameless um they may not want any change and they don't want really any ideas the way they live is perfect (laughs) right um and you know we need to go away and and that's that but i think in communities I, i do a lot of work in urban communities as well as small towns rural towns and i think those kinds of communities have some similarities. They have a lot of differences, but they have a lot of similarities because I think of economics, because they are communities that are not just kind of sitting comfortably and in perfect land or everything. Right. You know, they have a really strong tax base and uh, strong services. There's actually challenges that mm-hmm. that are pressing that need to be addressed and thought through. So I think communities like that um, are, are have more of an appetite to change things and to think through things. And of course, it's all in how you approach it. I I tend to think that that our group and the way that we approach it is, you know, by approaching it with goodwill and working directly with people and not just having a, a purist idea of how to solve these challenges, but it really depends on the community that yeah. that you're working with, as you know, too. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of often seemed like the 
places that, uh, just broadly speaking from my own experience, the places that are thriving economically today are the places where it's harder to make changes. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that, so whether it's a wealthy community, whether it's urban, suburban, rural, whatever it is, if it's got well above average income, household incomes and everything else, people tend to have this idea that uh, that success is because of the way it is. Like it's inherent to the physical characteristics there. Yeah. And that anything that changes that is a threat uh, that could bring the whole thing down. Um, and Which I, is interesting because it's like how fragile is your system yeah. here if like small changes to the built environment are just yeah. going to bring the Titanic down. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and you can see this in really wealthy uh, urban communities that resist change. Mm -hmm. You can see it in uh, some of the wealthy suburban communities, you know, that you referenced that completely resist change. And they think it's because it's all single family houses that that's why it's successful. Uh, and in, I've seen it in rural areas or maybe not rural, maybe let's call it exurban areas that um, have like very large lot, you know, acreage type development and, um, and they just happened to be in a sweet spot where there were enough people who had a lot of money that wanted that and they don't want to change any of that because it's going to bring in uh, an element that they don't, they don't like. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of does speak to that point. It's like whatever your experience is, if it's a positive experience in your place, you think that that's normal and desirable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like, that's how everybody should live. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. So, um, I don't know. I found this, I, I found a lot of this interesting. And I think Addison also referenced a lot of this. There was another piece he said, um, let's see if I can find this one here. So, so as I think about all this, I realize that the average American who lives in the suburbs and drives most places doesn't know what urbanism is. Of course, it sounds suspect or foreign or ideological. Here's normal American life that I and everyone I know live every day. Over here are these people who don't like it. Mm -hmm. That sort of vague suspicion may or may not make sense, but it's understandable. Urbanists have to tell, but we also have to show. And instead of dismissing people who reject our ideas, even in seemingly absurd ways, we can sh should consider that they may literally have no idea what we're actually proposing, hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. I remember. That's so, the challenge of being in this space, right? Yeah. I feel like half my job is just illustrating ideas and precedents yeah. to try to educate people on a particular topic, right? Yeah, I used to feel like... Um, we should almost call what we did as just like educational sessions. Yeah. Right. You know, it was like a, it was like a master class and just like, here's a, you know, about city and town planning uh -huh, and right. the differences. I do remember like one of the very first, uh, I think the first design charrette I had the opportunity to work on, um, which was after you were born. So I will oh. say that. <laughs> I think this would have been 1999. Oh uh, I had the chance to work with uh, Dover and Cole and partners, Victor Dover uh, and Joe Cole's firm. Uh, and it was on a, it was sort of a redevelopment and planning effort for Johnson City, Tennessee, which mm. was in far eastern Tennessee, um, basically on the border with, uh, boy, I'm going to get this wrong. It was either Virginia or West Virginia. I feel bad about getting that geography wrong. But, you know, I, I remember one of the things, Victor, at that time when we were introducing concepts of like new urbanism to people, one of the things that Victor would do that was, I thought, really brilliant 
was just talk to people in some very simple, tangible ways. Like, don't you think it would be nice if your kid could leave the house, walk down to the end of the street and go get ice cream at an ice cream shop mm-hmm. and walk back with like without your supervision? Uh, and that was like an increment of walkability that a lot of people could identify with. And you could say, you know, that would be pretty cool. Why don't we have that? Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And that's exactly the approach that's needed broadly in this space, because it's really easy for people who are urban planning consultants or urban planners to get very academic about these ideas, which I think not only confuses people, but also turns off a huge portion of the population that yeah. don't want to be talked to like that. Um, it, it actually reminds me of, well, both in urban neighborhoods and in uh, small towns that I've worked in, they have said, we really want to focus on bread and butter issues. And walkability is a bread and butter issue in that framing that you just described. Mm -hmm. But if you were to approach it another way, I think it wouldn't feel very bread and butter to people. People, you know, wouldn't understand how it connects to their daily life. And that is really, I think the power of planning is actually connecting these ideas to quality of life, um, the way people are living, right? right? This article is all about different lifestyles and, Do we know what we're even talking about when talking about urbanism versus uh, suburbanism and the bundles that go with that? So, again, like the the framing of one versus the other, I think, is a false framing because really it's about changing, making small modifications to the bundles that exist that meet people where they're at, that are a tangible benefit rather than saying, you know, you live in a suburban neighborhood and Target is down the street and we are going to completely change that. That's not what people are interested in. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. And of course, I always encourage any planner who uh, is listening or engages people to basically never use isms uh, anyway and try to, whatever you're talking about when you're talking to uh, people who are not in our tiny little world to <laughs> to make things as tangible uh, as possible in ways that people can understand and kind of get away from how we talk about things because uh, yeah. it's just not it's not very helpful. I'm curious. I, I know uh, I, I know one town that you've worked in quite a bit was Harrisonville, Missouri. Yeah. Harrisonville is kind of a classic uh, courthouse square um, county seat, uh, great little square. Uh, how did what how did that how did these conversations go in a place like that which had some historic bones that were obviously built around walkability to some extent uh and when you go into there now and talk about those ideas and planning ideas built around walking or biking or anything like that how how were those conversations in in a community like that i was incredibly impressed with harrisonville i loved working with them um I actually at one point was like, should I move here? It's not that far from Kansas City. And there's so much opportunity for incremental development. There's a lot of beautiful old houses that are just outside the downtown. There's momentum happening in the downtown, small businesses that are starting to open up their doors. There's an event space and some restaurants. So I was really impressed with that and and also very impressed with the leadership and the stakeholders that were involved in that process. 
they were incredibly engaged. And although I wouldn't say they had a, um, like they didn't really have a preconceived background of urbanism and these kinds of topics, they were really enthusiastic in their engagement and interested in learning more about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that we were able to effectively tie a lot of these a lot of these concepts and ideas to bread and butter issues that they were interested in. They they had very specific things that they wanted to look at for this project. And so, you know, one of them was that they're interested in having an industrial park outside the city, mm-hmm. um, which is very different than the downtown square revitalization mm-hmm. efforts. And they also have a, a commercial corridor. I think it's called commercial street, hmm. um, that they want to make more multimodal and improve the, the character of that street generally. So mm-hmm. there, again, it's like inserting ideas into these different bundles of existing places, um, th- that I think they, they were very open to a lot of different ideas. Of course, we don't just throw ideas at them and say, this is the way it needs to be. We work with them to think through Mm -hmm. these ideas and think through what what we may not be thinking about and um so that that was a community that i was impressed by and i would be excited to work with them in the future because of just how enthusiastic and engaged they were do you think the do you get the sense that the people who are there see the historic part of town the older part of town as a great asset it probably depends on who you're speaking with. It's not mm-hmm. a very big town. And right. um, the downtown square has the county seat. So the mm-hmm. courthouse is there. Um, they have a lot of engagement in the downtown area, festivals. They have a mayor who like leads a lot of these, these efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think that a lot of people do see it as an asset. Actually going, I went to the high school and spoke with a bunch of high school students Mm. about this and it was kind of cool they were like they were talking about the downtown square as an opportunity to make it their mall because there's Mm. no mall anywhere near harrisonville and they just want to go to the mall (laughs) and um so which is really cool because the downtown downtowns are the original malls right Mm -hmm. outdoor malls right um so I, i think people understood a lot of these ideas based on their experience and the bread and butter issues that they're that they're dealing with and kind of the aspirations that they have for yeah. the city. Yeah, it's funny. I grew up in a couple of towns that were um, about the size of Harrisonville that were similar and courthouse towns uh, and everything. And it, it, it was it was a different time period. Uh, <laughs> Make it sound like it was a long time ago. But, uh, <laughs> All the way back <clears throat> in the kind of was a long time ago at this point. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, uh, I it definitely in that era, I would say um, most people in those towns did not really value the historic areas, the downtowns, as a great asset, and we're, we're really focused on what's the new stuff we can build on hmm. the edge of town. What's the uh, can we build them all? Are, are we going to get a Walmart? You know, are we going to get a Taco Bell? Are we going to get, you know, some some sort of a commercial strip like we see in big cities? Um, now, in the interim, what I've seen, I've been I've been back to both those places uh, in the last decade. And um, 
I've been to Marshall, Missouri more often than Albert Lee, Minnesota, but uh, Marshall um, has clearly started to put a little more emphasis on their uh, courthouse square area and trying to actually draw visitors there. And it seems to be the, at least from the outside looking in now, the community is projecting that more of as an asset uh, than probably what they did 30 years ago. Yeah, well, that's where I think the Joe Minicosi or Urban 3 analysis can be really appealing to people who are in small towns. And for anybody who's not familiar with what that analysis is, it's basically looking at the value of of property and whether that's sales taxes, if you can get it, or Mm -hmm. property tax at the parcel level on a per acre basis. And what we see time and time again in, in downtown areas is that because of the relative uh, compactness and density of properties, it is a it, it yields a high tax value on a per acre basis. So downtowns are very economically potent for small towns. Uh, and we often see this even if the downtown area has been disinvested in mm-hmm. just because of that compact nature of the property and the development pattern. So I, th- I think to a lot of small towns that is appealing because tax base uh, to fund city services is always a challenge. And if you yeah. can demonstrate that reinvesting in the downtown will continue to improve tax base and be valuable in that way, I think I think that's something people are interested in. Um, but, you know, in a place like Harrisonville, they certainly are interested in both downtown revitalization, but they also want the Aldis. They also right. want, you know, the the company that's going to come in and serve some other function that isn't necessarily a downtown function. Yeah. Well, I think that analysis that you talk about, if, if kind of bringing it back to the article, it provides another way to talk about these things right. with people that kind of pulls it away from uh, a bit of the ideological lens and I mean, I always just think this is so funny because there are all these things that we used to do just so naturally <laughs> when we, when all these towns were built, when all of our historic places were built. Uh, and now that we've had three or four generations of people who've grown up in uh, American suburbia, we've, we've like lost the ability to even talk about these things with a common language. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think talk about these things with a common language, but also you have to think about who's actually developing our cities now, right? Yeah. I mean, when when all of these historic towns um, from, you know, the origination of a place like Kansas City that grew up into a big city to a s- small town that has a historic historic remnants of a downtown square, I mean, that's that w- was built by people who were like local developers, mm-hmm. which is very different than the corporate conglomerates that develop a lot of our cities right. and influence a lot of land use and transportation uh, uh, planning and, and outcomes in cities. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So now uh, we're going to shift and do something that you always do on your show. <laughs> uh, Abby, we're going to go to the down zone. Unfortunately, I don't have like Kemet's really cool music to like open and close the show. Oh, dang. We'll have to ask him if we can use it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But uh, you always do this really cool thing on your show uh, that uh, is basically like tell us something uh, that you're reading, you're watching, something you're doing that is uh, occupying a lot of your time 
uh, and uh, what's going on that uh, you want to share in the down zone? Um, I have been spending a lot of time on my charcoal drawings, <laughs> which probably I've I seen know. you post. <laughs> I know it probably doesn't surprise you. Um, I started um, doing charcoal drawing again, picked it back up in like the late summer. And um, I used to draw many years ago and kind of took some time off. And now I'm getting back into it and started doing cityscapes and then got some larger paper and better charcoal hmm. and have been moving on to working on portraits. I spent about a month working to develop more realistic looking drawings, like so starting with portraits of people trying to make them more realistic. And now I'm kind of going into abstract world and trying to mix in the the realism with the abstract. I'm not a trained artist, so <laughs> it's literally just a hobby. Um, so I'm, I've kind of had some fun experimenting with charcoal. Um, I, I like the medium because it's very forgiving. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, you can try to make it look perfect. And a lot of artists do that, do realism really well with the material, but it's very flowy. You can use paint brushes, you can add water to it. Um, so it kind of can come out like a painting depending on how you smudge it and the techniques that you use to yeah. actually apply it on the paper. That's pretty cool. I've watched uh, you sharing all these. If you uh, want to follow Abby on Instagram, she she drops <laughs> them on there with regularity. But uh, they're very impressive. Thanks, Kevin. I know I know you're not a trained artist, as you say, but it's it's they're very well done, and it's also been cool to see watch you get better uh, at the technique uh, as you, you post them. It, it's just kind of, it makes me think it's kind of a cool thing to just generally share with anybody is to. If you have something you're working on, uh, any kind of a creative hobby, to be able to like use social media to just routinely share like the improvement and the trajectory of what you're doing is is really fun. Thanks, Kevin. Well, that's what I like about the like Instagram story function. You don't have to actually make a post. You can just kind of put something hmm. out there that's temporary and then it goes away. Um, and what I think is fun about sharing it is that I'm not always sharing something that's finished. Actually, I don't think any of them are finished. <laughs> like, you should see my apartment. They're all hanging up all over the place because hmm. if you lay charcoal down flatly, it will smudge. So it's – I'm working on a new system for how I'm going to hang these up. But right now they're taped like – I have brick walls, so I yeah. only have so many places I can tape. Uh, these papers too. That's a personal issue. <laughs> but but I like to show these drawings in an imperfect way or yeah. document the process of drawing it because it's I just think it's kind of fun to to see a drawing come together and to put things out there that are unfinished. Not everything has to be perfect, uh, which is why I like charcoal because it is a very forgiving material. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So what well, is your down zone, Kevin? <laughs> now well, I get to put you on the spot. Okay. Well, let's see. I'll go with um, some books that I've been reading. Uh, I have, uh, yeah, I, I think I talked about this before. The last couple of years, I've just had a really hard time reading nonfiction. Uh, huh. uh, there's just been too much. Uh, my life has been too busy, too serious. There's too many things in the world going on that have been 
you know, very serious. And I think I've just been looking for an escape mm-hmm. whenever I've been coming to read. So I've been reading a lot of fiction, a lot of novels the last two or three years. The latest batch that I've been reading is by an author named Greg Eilis. Uh, last name is I-L-E-S. Um, these are not brand new. These are several years old, but he has a whole series of novels that he has written that were based in and around Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, and they're just, they're fantastic books. Hmm. Uh, I love them. And uh, I, there's so much about these books that I enjoy reading. Uh, and I'm just about finished with, he has a trilogy that he calls the Natchez Burning Trilogy uh, that I, I've got one book left that I actually, I started it uh, last night and I'll, I'll finish that one up and then I'll be done with that trilogy. But uh, I have never been to Natchez reading these books desperately makes me want to go visit. Wow. Uh, it reminds me an awful lot of my time living in Savannah. Hmm. And there are a number of these just gems of historic Southern cities that we have uh, in America that are uh, just beautiful places, uh, incredible history, tortured history as hmm. well. Uh, and the the life and the stories, when you get a, when you get a good author, who writes about one of these places and almost has like the city itself as a character in the book. Um, they're really fantastic. So um, Savannah obviously had midnight in the garden of good, good midnight in the garden of good and evil, uh, which by the way, was the longest running number one book on the New York times uh, bestseller list. Really incredible uh, and huh. incredible book, great movie. And it really positioned the city of Savannah as like a character uh, in the book. Hmm. And, and I think I read these books by Greg Eilis and I feel like Natchez is similar. Uh, so I've really enjoyed those. Uh, and uh, as soon as I'm done with this one, then I've got to find a new, I'm going to have to find a new author and a new set of books to read. But the, these have been great. That's so. great. Well, I'll have to add those to my list. I, I feel like I have a list of books that are all nonfiction that for the same reasons I have yeah. not <laughs> yeah. jumped into because it's like, there's only so much your brain can handle exactly. in a world that has so much going on. Yeah. So I've got a giant stack next to my bed. Yeah. Really excellent nonfiction books that I want to read at some point. Now, I'll get to them eventually. It's just just not now. That's funny. I have a stack of books I'm like that yeah. I just have and I, I keep adding to it yeah. on my nightstand. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I need to probably get a bookshelf to go here, but you yeah. know, one thing at a time, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Abby, this has been a lot of fun. It's been fun to kind of turn the tables and uh, and do a reverse upzoned. And uh, I'm looking forward to you getting cranked up again in 2024 and having new episodes of the show. And uh, for anybody, again, if you're looking for it, it's on the Strong Towns Network, but it's available where all podcasts are available. Uh, <laughs> Apple, Spotify, all the usual places. So Thanks well, for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I hope you will be a recurring guest on Upzoned when we relaunch in 2024. Anytime you're looking for a contrarian point of view, just let yeah. me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you and Chuck are my ultimate contrarian guests, which is well, fun. <laughs> we're about the same age and we're both Midwesterners. So I guess we've got that in common. Yeah, it's like so. a Gen X thing, I it think. Is. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. All right. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs>